This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Axis Pipeline, and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. In 2016, a small protest encampment at the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota, initially established to block construction of the Dakota Access oil pipeline, grew to be the largest indigenous protest movement in the 21st century. Water protectors knew this battle for native sovereignty had already been fought many times before, and that, even after the encampment was gone, their anti-colonial struggle would continue. In Our History is the Future, Nick Estes traces traditions of indigenous resistance that led to the no-DAPL movement. Our History is the Future is at once a work of history, a manifesto, and an intergenerational story of resistance. I recently did a really incredible, in-depth, lengthy interview with Nick as well. You can find it at thedigradio.com. You should also really buy and read the book. Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Long History of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's often said that history is written by the victors. Such accounts aren't just bad history, however, but terrible politics as well, because they normalize systems of domination in the present and protect their reproduction into the future. When people don't understand settler colonial history, for example, they come to see borders as natural and then demonize those who cross them. If, instead, we refuse to accept the conqueror's view as the normal one, the wisdom of the legendary Chicano chant becomes clear. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. This episode of The Dig is an interview with historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, conducted by a special guest host, filmmaker Astra Taylor. Dunbar-Ortiz has had an unusual life as an activist and historian at the cutting edge of anti-war, women's liberation, and indigenous rights movements. She has written many books, including Roots of Resistance, Land Tenure in New Mexico, 1680 through 1980, and Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Her most recent book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, has been adapted into an edition aimed at younger readers, An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People. Spanning more than four centuries, Dunbar Ortiz documents how Native people have always resisted expansion of the U.S. empire and continue to do so today. But first, my short and sweet request for your support at patreon.com slash the dig.
I started this podcast nearly three years ago to provide the maximum number of people doing critical work to change the world everywhere, unusually in-depth and complex left-wing analysis. And I hear from you by email and on social media every day. Labor organizers, Bernie Sanders campaign workers, fighters against mass incarceration, and am profoundly grateful that this show is useful to people fighting for a just society. That's our goal, and to meet it, we provide each and every episode free to all because those of you who can support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. What's more, if you donate $10 a month or more, we have left-wing books to send you as a token of our gratitude, including Samuel Stein's Capital City, Gentrification, and the Real Estate State. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. If you're getting dressed for work or stuck in traffic listening to me right now, please remember to make a contribution when you're back at your computer. Also, I wanted to remind you that we have been transcribing a ton of interviews, and they're available now at thedigradio.com, our beautiful and relatively new website. Also at thedigradio.com, every audio episode is available there, organized by guest and by topic. Okay, here's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, born in 1939 in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and part Native American mother, and a professor emeritus in ethnic studies at California State University. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. Her most recent documentary, What is Democracy?, is now streaming, and her latest book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, is out now from Metropolitan Books. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Astra. It's good to talk to you. So your book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, came out in 2014. And a new edition, An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People, is just out from Beacon. And, you know, these are the kinds of books that one would assume would already exist. They just seem so evidently necessary. But, of course, they didn't until you wrote them. So I was wondering if you could begin by talking about why these books are important, how you came to write them, and you know, also why you adapted the first edition for a younger audience. It was something I thought from the very beginning when I finished the book that it was going to, it was going to need a um, young people's edition, that I wrote it for a general audience, general kind of educated audience, uh, but not... Uh, not academic, you know, not uh, um, scholarly in the very formal sense, and certainly not using any jargon. Uh, being a historian, trained as a historian, we don't use much jargon to begin with, but our work can be very dense, you know, with too many citations and uh, 
too many references to other works. My editor was very good about calling that kind of thing out of the book. So actually, the book, uh, you know, for five years it's been out, it has been used in a lot of middle schools, to my surprise, and successfully. So I took on the um, burden of raising a grant f- to do it. So I actually hired a uh, an adapter, uh, a professional young, uh, young people's um, author and critic, uh, Debbie Reese, who is uh, Nambe Pueblo from New Mexico. And uh, she agreed to do it. So it was a flat fee. So what's happened in the meantime is they worked on the book, and as Beacon got more excited about it, they decided to do um, young people's versions of the whole series of revisioning American history. So the one on the queer history of the United States is also coming out in a young people's edition. And... um, so will the others. So they've actually created a division because of it. But that's kind of a long story about the, you know, the nuts and bolts. Um, I I certainly kept track of the adaption as it went along, uh, looked at everything along the way. But it really is um, a skill in itself, you know, writing for young people or children that I don't have. And um, They've done just an amazing job of um, of keeping the essence of the um, edge of the story because it's a very harsh history of genocide and um, and slavery. It's it's hard reading. You know, it's probably even harder than if it were kind of obscured with a lot of scholarly stuff. Um, and it's it's just not. It doesn't spare anything. So they've kept that essence of the toughness of it and the hard edge of it, but also put it in language that's, you know, spare and um, also have added. uh, My original book didn't have any illustrations or maps or pictures. So it's just a really, and it's also um, much shorter. It's uh, half the uh, number of words as the original. It has, you know, it just came out last week, well, two weeks ago, and it has sold out, you know, several printings already. It's just really doing well. Um, There's just so much excitement and interest, and part of that is the the, um, networks that Debbie Reese uh, and her writing um, partner, Jean Mendoza, they've been doing this work for years, and they're completely networked with all the middle school and and uh, elementary school teachers around the country and librarians uh, who who stock those kinds of books so it's uh, it's just been really a wonderful experience and outcome it's really interesting what you said about how it's in some ways a harsher story without some of the academic discourse because I was surprised picking up the youth edition at it's it's still very hefty, even though it's half as long, and it's it's very direct, and it speaks to the young reader as though they're intelligent and can handle the truth. In both this version, but also the original version, are about truth-telling. And so I want to talk about the way the truth has been obscured 
In both an Indigenous People's History, but also your book Loaded, you return to the ways in which stereotypes and narratives are promulgated to prop up settler colonial mythology, right? For example, you write that, quote, democracy, equality, and equal rights do not fit well with dominance of one race by another, much less with genocide, settler colonialism, and empire, end quote. So various myths had to be devised and apparatuses had to be invented to sustain those myths. You know, one example, you talk about firsting and lasting, the process of sort of writing Native people out of existence. So we see that in our world around sort of markers saying, oh, the first settler was here, the first school, the first library. And of course, that refers to colonizers. And so hear about, you know, the founding fathers as if they were the first Democrats. Meanwhile, there are stories of indigenous people that emphasize endings. So you talk about the last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper, who you point out was a land speculator or The End of the Trail, the sculpture by James Earl Foster. You really dissect these myths, and I was wondering if you could talk about the origins of them and why they're so important, the way they're upheld by books and movies and television, you know, and why the Settler Colonial Project can't exist without this this propaganda. Yeah, it's a whole, um, you know, mythology that is so deeply ingrained and so... um, so all-encompassing, uh, being, you know, just, just everywhere, and so normalized that people don't notice it. It's some things that, after I wrote the book, people would, um, uh, on Facebook, you know, social media, or even emailing me, um, give me additional examples uh, in their local area of, of things like... Um, logos on, you know, when you enter a small town, there'll be, you know, the sign of the town, and then often they have a a logo for the town. And in New England, apparently, uh, I spent some time in New England, but it was before I was uh, conscious, you know, looking for things like this. Logos that are racist, you know, they're they're just... uh, Races. They have, you know, little caricatures of Indians, and or one of them has a, a man in buckskin, you know, a, a pioneer, I guess, scalping an Indian, you know, or has him by the head of the, you know, head of the hair with a knife. And th- this is just normal. It's today, you know, it's there unless someone points it out and says, "Hey, we have to." think about this, rethink this, which is going on, you know, now, but, but it's so vast, you know, when you think about it, it's just so deep and so vast that it, it sometimes it seems overwhelming. And that children, uh, from the time they can walk and see, are just absorbing all of this as normality. So that's what, you know, I tried to, um, as much as I could uh, in a book, is just make people aware, you know, and getting all those responses were very satisfying because it meant that, uh, in fact, most people who wrote said, I had never thought about this before, but this is what I noticed today, you know. So consciousness is... um, uh, raising consciousness is extremely important. Then people start learning on their own. You know, they don't have to be instructed on each each and every uh, thing why it's 
not right, they see it themselves and then they discuss it with others and then they go to the town council or the, you know, their whatever their local government is and they get it changed and then they ask for uh, demand an Indigenous Peoples Day and, you know, this is then how the process goes and it's a similar process with with you know with african-american history and the you know the statuary the the um, confederate statues and that has not ended it's still those yeah this and the first thing and lasting is that um this is uh jenny o'brien this amazing um uh historian who has studied New England, and um, this is all over the country. We have this the first uh, the first town, and often the first town is settlers pushed native people and set up their own you know white settlements. They often would name that first settlement Columbus. So you have Columbuses all over the country, and. It's a big stretch because, you know, what does Columbus have to do with the United States history? You have to think it through. It's, it's, a, it's apparently a vital connection, and yet he never did touch the continental United States, what is now the United States. And it was two centuries later that any, you know, anyone um, started colonizing in the, uh, or before the British, the Anglos started colonizing so it's that's a question I ask like when I speak in one of those Columbus towns or they're nearby is uh, why is why is your your town named Columbus and Columbia is another version of it and you know the district of Columbia Columbia University so so that's that's another fetish you know <laughs> that that's just really interesting when you start thinking about it one thing that struck me in the beginning of your book is that these myths, they're not just upheld in the realm of fiction or, you know, placards in our community or the names of our towns, but they're also upheld in academic realms, right? So you mm-hmm. begin your book with a discussion of U.S. history and the standard periodization of historical events, which usually begins with the colonial era and then moves through the revolutionary, Jacksonian era, the Civil War, et cetera. Can you talk about why it's not just enough to sort of insert indigenous people into this pre-existing conventional historical narrative as though you could just sort of add a dash of indigeneity to the melting pot of American history? Like, why do we have to rethink those categories? In my book, I, I, I don't radically change that periodization. I make people aware of it, but I didn't want to make it too esoteric. What they did was... In U.S. history, they simply left Native people out altogether after the colonial era. And then uh, at the turn of the 20th century, they invented a whole new uh, field of history called Western history. Not Western civilization, but Western United States. And they segregated that, and that was the Indians, um, that was the conquest of the Indians. And it, it was always a degraded field, you know, considered a, uh, a secondary field, and a lot of the elite universities didn't even um, teach it, didn't even have it, uh, courses in it. And um, 
so it's still not, you know, it's still not highly respected, although it has changed a lot with um, Native Americans kind of invading it and taking it over. <laughs> it's become almost a Chicano indigenous people's history instead of Western history. But that periodization is generally excludes. So Indians are, are relegated to the colonial period, you know, the up to um, the revolution, and then really not dealt with that much in general U.S. history until, you know, the Army of the West, the post-Civil War period, and then only very, very briefly. And it's just um, astounding um, to me when I look at history textbooks and, and even um, university courses, their their uh, course outlines, how the war against Mexico, the invasion, occupation, and annexation of half of Mexico is sometimes not even mentioned, you know, and if it is, it's that they bought it. The United States bought half of Mexico, you know, like they bought the Louisiana Purchase. And that's what I grew up uh, assuming, you know, they had been purchased for $15 million. And, well, you know, that's too bad, but that's not exactly what happened. It was a major war, and it was a war of counterinsurgency. It was the Indian Wars writ large, an invasion of Mexico City, which at that time was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere, it still is, <laughs> and still what you know was when the Europeans came and um, occupied it. Uh, but that took two, you know, a year and a half of um, coming in through the border, but also through Veracruz, and for Marines. Really, everything you read and know about Vietnam, the um, search and destroy kill everything that moves that was that was precursor was uh, Veracruz to Mexico City operation they killed tens of thousands of Mexican farmers you know just uh, peasants and then they occupied Mexico City and put it under harsh I mean raping and looting and burning buildings and knocking down uh, statuary brutalizing and holding the government hostage and force them to sign a treaty of uh, and so it's a you know it's an illegitimate treaty it was signed under um, under occupation and that's why this border question which is so pertinent right now without this deeper history it's not all that deep you know it's not all that far away it makes no sense. It is a contested border. It is illegitimate. And even the proponents, you know, of uh, a so-called immigration. So, you know, really, well, this, I'm now I'm talking about my next book. <laughs> Sorry, this is, maybe I shouldn't get off on that. But, you know, I'm doing um, uh, my next book that I'm writing now is a Nation of Immigrants. So it focuses on the border. But I have some of that, you know, in the um, indigenous peoples. And I, 
So the Mexican War is a part of that. But other thing is during the during the Civil War uh, were some of the major operations against Native peoples in uh, against the Apaches. Um, the Navajos were rounded up during the Civil War by the Union Army and put in a concentration camp uh, in southeast uh, New Mexico, far from their homeland, and kept there for three years until the war was over. And the um, genocide against the Dakota people in Minnesota in 1863 and mass execution. So these... Um, uh, and Sand Creek, of course, the massacre of Sand Creek took place during the Civil War. Uh, so these were all, uh, and both the Confederate Army and the Union Army were fighting Indians uh, in the West um, because the Confederates also wanted to. If they won, they were going to do the same thing. You know? So there were two occasions that have been documented documented where Confederates and Union soldiers were fighting on the same side against the Apaches. <laughs> and so that's, I mean, the, this leaving Indians out just, you know, it, it just flattens history and obscures it and twists it and makes it uh, illegible of why we're in the situation we're in today. I really am, you know, you got into something that I wanted to ask you later, but I'm happy to hear that that's your next book. It's an incredibly important topic. But maybe do you want to take this moment to maybe say more about the issues at the border? Because one thing that's striking is how many of the people who are imprisoned there and separated from their families are indigenous. Well, and it is an indigenous, you know, indigenous peoples all across that border are cut in half, you know, half of uh, of the Totonomshone are in Arizona, are in Arizona, and half are in uh, Chihuahua, and you know all the way um, across the border. That's the case, and many, many Native people who took refuge in Mexico and enslaved Africans who um, freed themselves and took refuge in Mexico were, when the um, border was relocated with annexation. There they were, back in the United States, under United States uh, control. And um, slaves were put back into slavery, and Native people were killed. They, the ones who could make it went down to the new border and were given uh, refuge again. But the indigenous peoples of Mesoamerica, um, you know, Mesoamerica, and that includes... Um, uh, Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras into central Mexico. It's a, it's a huge area of um, Mayan, Aztec, you know, many, many different peoples, all of them people of the corn. You know, this is where the um, corn, beans, and squash, the agricultural civilization was built upon and spread all the way to the subarctic and all the way to the uh, Amazon and east and west as a uni unitary uh, Western hemispheric agricultural culture and trade routes. So colonialism uh, from the beginning, you know, Spanish and Portuguese started chopping that up 
separating people. But that that corridor from Mesoamerica to the um, uh, Rocky Mountains, U- Utah, and to the Gulf, to the Pacific Ocean and to the Gulf, it remained unitary because the Spanish colonization, um, they because they sought uh, labor for the mines, they moved people around, lots of, you know, relocation of forcing people to work in the mines because the first century of um, Spanish colonization, the main slave labor force were Indians. They were, you know, actual slaves owned and inherited. But then, um, you know, there was the dispute in the church and state of the church wanted the Indians' labor, so they that's when they introduced African slavery into um, at, on large scale. This integral, you know, this this these trade routes up and down that corridor from Mesoamerica to north of what's now Colorado and Utah. These were how peoples were formed, uh, the migration patterns. The, for instance, the Hopi language is um, is Nahuatl. Uh, that's the language of the Aztecs because the Aztecs were from that area and the Hopi are are the people who didn't, you know, didn't migrate to central Mexico. So their language is Nahuatl. And that was also the the general language. So it's not just establishing the borders, it's also the U.S. interventions because once Central America and Mexico became independent, Central America became stayed a Unitarian region. Uh, was the Republic of Central America? All of those Central American countries, including Nicaragua, were in that, and it took only about twenty years for the U.S. and also the British to break that down. You know, to force them into these um, these smaller units, um, multiple interventions, military and economic. And then uh, Mexico was, you know, uh, chopped off a, a huge part of Guatemala, which is now Yucatan and Chiapas and, you know, that whole Mayan area. So the these creating all of those borders were problematic, but the northern border of Mexico, when it became independent, was the same as under the Spanish. So the... 1848, uh, 49, or 1850, uh, creation of the new border was uh, a major change in, uh, but still you see the trek of the, um, you know, the Central American refugees coming. You know, it's a traditional trek when things would get bad in one place, people would migrate to the other, to other parts of that corridor. So in a way, it's traditional for these uh, for indigenous peoples in that area, but it's also they also think rightly that um, the United States owes them something. You know, this should really be reparations because that they be able to come here. Because since the minute the Central American Republic was broken down, there have been you know that's where the term gunboat diplomacy was invented for interventions in Central America. 
they have just never left those people alone. And it's um, it's not even a place where there's a lot of wealth to extract from. They get all that they can, cutting down all the mahogany trees and, you know, whatever gold or silver exists. But it was simply decided by the United States that this was a strategic region they had to they had to control. And of course, they built the Panama Canal. And in doing that, you know, the, the country of Panama was a um, province of Colombia, the country of Colombia, and they just chopped it off and built the canal there. So it's its own country now. So the United States has just artificially um, recreated the whole of uh, North America because this is a, this is all North America. You don't get to the uh, equator <laughs> until Ecuador. <laughs> so North America is this creation. So I I just think that those of us who are doing um, protesting the border that we really shouldn't call these people immigrants. You know, well, they don't call themselves that. They're calling themselves refugees, and that's really what they are. And they're not only that, they're refugees who, not from some other place in the world, they're refugees directly related to the United States creating the conditions that have made them refugees. So we need to have that consciousness that we're not just being benevolent or um, having pity or, you know, being humanitarian, but actually owe a huge debt. One thing, you know, picking up from some of the threads, you know, you're talking about wars of counterinsurgencies and, and the outcomes of these wars and how the borders we have now are the product of these imperial campaigns. You also mentioned the Tohono O'odham Nation, and my family actually moved to Arizona right after I was born. And so we moved to a working class neighborhood. And in fact, it turned out that the groundwater was polluted by military industrial waste. There's a military base there. And so my sister was born with a physical disability. Tens of thousands of people died of cancer. And so this, I'm talking about 1980, the indigenous communities on the south side of Tucson, Arizona are still dealing with the repercussions of this. And so, you know, in this way, we still have this incredible violence and this impact of militarization on a community. Um, and of course, you know, the harm really can't be undone in that case. At the same time, in your book, you look at the way the military, so there, there is this sort of endless war, but then this, this kind of rhetoric also infuses the U.S. military. So you look at the phrase Indian country, can you talk about that and what, what that means and how it's not actually a literal physical place, but a kind of horrible metaphor? It used to be a term that um, it's used in one way in Indian law as um, that's not negative for Native people and that, um, for instance, some court decisions like the Bolt decision on water rights and fishing rights up in the state of Washington um, specified that uh, although Native people had been reduced to smaller portions, that they had the right to fish in uh, Indian country, you know, what had been Indian country. So that was a very positive thing, but it used that language. But in the Vietnam War, 
they started using the term Indian country to designate enemy, enemy territory. And it got shortened, you know, it gets shortened to in country. And I just wince every time I hear one of these network, you know, these cable TV uh, reporters, especially Rachel Maddow, does it all the time, thinking they're being smart using, you know, using technical language, saying, well, how long were you in country, you know? And it's like using this slur, you know, for enemy territory. So, you know, really indicating that it was an Indian war, and a lot was written, you know, at the time of the Vietnam War. The first thing I read written about it was by Tom Hayden in uh, a book that, you know, a small book that wasn't read very much, but he pointed it out because he had dealt with so many of these vets in, um, you know, he was an SDS and a uh, um, student leader and then a peace, uh, an anti-Vietnam War activist who was chosen to um, by North Vietnam to be the person who would come or select who would come to bring back U.S. POWs that they wouldn't deal with directly with the United States, but dealt with a peace movement. So he did that. So he knew hundreds and hundreds of these vets and listened to their language, you know, the way they talked to each other, their kind of codes, and they were using using that term Indian country. Then, you know, others heard it, but it wasn't noticed, you know, all that much for some time until um, the Gulf War in 1991, when that was the next major open war after the Vietnam War, where tanks and 500,000 troops and all were used. They were using it again, and they were using it on, um, you know, these... um, mostly Vietnam-era uh, officers coming on as consultants on on TV and talking about Indian country, when they'd be in Indian country. And so the National Congress of American Indians made a complaint, you know, and said that there were, amazingly, 23,000 Native Americans fighting over there and that it was um, kind of insulting. So they didn't really get it either, but it there were other terms they were using. They were using language like when it's not time to plant the corn yet. It's not plant, corn planting time yet. They were using colonial language. And what I figured out, and, you know, in, in my way, Indigenous Peoples' History of the United States could be read as it could be renamed a Military History of the United States because the U.S. military is completely formed, you know, by the Indian Wars. And this language comes down through uh, as, as um, not as code, but as, as lingo, the, how they talk to each other. So planting the corn, you know, had to do with um, attacking the Indians when the corn was before harvest to destroy the crops because that was the method of warfare. Even though there's no corn in Vietnam, they were using this language. 
because there's a there's a, a a kind of bloodline system in the military. Those who are permanently in the military, officers' corps, and and at West Point, of the language they use, and it's um, it's entirely uh, built on the Indian Wars. And you point out that this continues through to the War on Terror, right? Because the Navy SEAL operation to assassinate Osama bin Laden is called Geronimo, if I'm remembering correctly. And I thought one of the more chilling parts of the book, too, I, I had forgotten about this, was the way John Yu, the University of California law professor who served in George W. Bush's Justice Department, right? He wrote that infamous torture memo from 2003. Oh, John Yu. Right. I mean, he kind of defends the designation of unlawful combatant by going back to a court case from 1873 called Modoc Indian Prisoners. So this is very much um, alive today in the endless war on terror. That was really interesting that John Yu came up with that homo sacer that these were unlawful combatants that had no humanity. They didn't have to be treated under regular law and used a Supreme Court decision in the Modoc War cases of the 1870s here in California, Northern California. The Modocs fought hard to keep their keep their territory in the north and uh, they killed a general, and uh, that's what they were on trial for. At first, they were taken as a, I mean, it was a real war in the annals of the United States. It's the Modoc War. So legally, they should have been POWs, you know. That, that existed, you know, the Geneva Conventions already existed at that time, and the U.S. was party to them. And POWs are, you know, disar- anyone is a non-combatants. Anyone who's not armed is not to be killed. And so they went ahead and, you know, the Supreme Court said that they could um, they could go ahead and um, hang them because uh, they were undeserving of humanity. So he used that successfully as a um, precedent. It reintroduced it into current law, you know, that should scare people. <laughs> I saw something speaking, uh, you know, just how alive these issues are. I just came across an article this morning in the New Republic that's about indigenous land struggles in Brazil. And it, it quoted Bolsonaro, who's now the president. And in 1998, he said, it's a shame that the Brazilian cavalry hasn't been as efficient as the Americans who exterminated the Indians. And then in 2017, one year before he became president, before he got elected, he said, where the native land is, there's wealth underneath it, right? Which is what it's all about. You make this clear that there's a battle over the land. And I just, I wanted to just ask you to talk about that shifting perspective to really recognize that land is at the heart of all of this and at the heart of American history. I mean, people tell themselves the story of the American Revolution as, you know, throwing off the yoke of tyranny. But really, it was about wanting to squat and steal indigenous territories, right? Well, you know, settler colonialism is a specific kind of colonialism, and it's not the general one, which is uh, horrible. You know, I, I mean, we know more about, understand more about Congo or the colonization of uh, India or, um, you know, all the African, uh, what are now African states. But the settler colonialism that the British introduced in the United States and then in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia 
was very much based on their own uh, trajectory. Uh, the other European colonialisms were always um, were immediately initially focused on South, you know, on Africa and Asia. But Britain was an island, and it was focused on conquering uh, surrounding peoples and conquered the Irish. So in that conquest of the Irish, which I'm not sure it's ever really happened, you can't call it conquest, but colonization, they uh, they developed settler colonialism as a way of conquering in, in Northern Ireland to replacement, you know, to replace the indigenous Irish with settlers, Anglo and Scots uh, settlers. They did that very effectively and um, made the Irish Catholics landless uh, into tenant and sharecropping farmers and eventually very vulnerable to um, uh, to famine, uh, you know, which is uh, making a monocrop of potatoes. So that was their, you know, their Cromwell's... Um, creation of even of wild Irish reservations. That's what he called them, wild Irish reservations. This was all before the colonization began in North America. So they brought that with them. I don't think they looked around and said, well, how shall we colonize? You know, let's look at the Spanish model. They took a lot of stuff, especially the um, racial caste system, from that Spain had developed already in the peninsula before they went to the Americas in their expulsion of the Africans, the North Africa, the um, Muslims and the Jews. They had developed this cleanliness of blood, and they just added more categories when they got to the Americas of uh, mulatto and quadroon and uh, zambo and uh, Indio, you know, so they added these, but they adopted, they did adapt certain things, but they basically took their, uh, went as a colonizing mission with settlers. And they also did it as corporations, not as the state. As in Europe, it was always the state that was, uh, you know, the, the, the king, uh, the monarch that was ahead of any colonizing mission. But in theirs, they um, contracted it out to corporations, companies, so the Jamestown Company, you know, the um, and the pilgrims, then they rounded up settlers to take. So this is, the, this is what led to the United States being founded as a corporation. <laughs> you know, it's basically is a corporation, was founded as a corporation not a traditional nation state in a way if you read the constitution i mean if you if you can bring yourself to read the arcane language uh it's all about commerce you know all about corporations all about finance um that's what it is so this idea of freedom being being wealth and being based on also these Puritan ideas of, um, of chosen, you know, being chosen, Calvinist ideas of uh, being the chosen people. This is a really um, a strong brew that 
neither Canada nor New Zealand or Australia had, you know, the, the mixture of all of that. Plus the the decision, well, 400 years ago this year, to um, uh, import enslaved Africans. They um, had indentured servants, but definitely once they imported enslaved Africans, they were not some historians have tried to say that they were just indentured like everyone else, but no, the slave codes had not been developed yet, not not for 50 or 60 more years, fully developed where the definition of slavery was African, but uh, there already was the practice of uh, the children of Africans, enslaved Africans, were um, enslaved. And that wasn't true of indentured, white indentured servants who Andrew Jackson's family were indentured servants. You know, they could easily, it was uh, a way to get started, you know. So it's there's really almost no connection because slavery identified as African was created by the Vatican, by the um, Holy Roman Empire in 1454 with a papal bull identifying Africa as um, as the um, uh, fount of um, enslavement. So that was already long set before the British um, came. Those ingredients that make up what the United States is and, and the inherent genocide in um, settler colonialism of Genocide being uh, defined as an attempt to destroy um, in whole or in part a people as a people. It's a collective, you know, a collective thing, not how many individuals are killed. There No individuals have to be killed as such. They usually are, but it's um, uh, forcing them into situations where they can no longer have the integrity of... Um, of uh, being a people, that genocide over you know over a period of four hundred years is um, it's just something that's not not dealt with at all. I want to pick up on what you just said about ways in which the United States is exceptional, and you mentioned the Constitution, and and so in an Indigenous Peoples History and Loaded, you talk about how we actually have a very strange relationship to the Constitution like treating it as though it's this kind of sacred religious document. So I was wondering, actually, if you could talk about that, because you write, Great Britain has no written constitution. U.S. citizens did not inherit our cult-like adherence to the constitution from the British. Right. So how does that set us apart? Why is it problematic or even pathological? It's just so exceptional in the first place. I think most people in the United States think that... um, there's no way there would be any kind of law without a constitution. But of course, two-thirds of U.S. law is not constitutional. It's based on property, you know, um, common law and legislation. Constitutions are a kind of frameworks, and they, you know, they, they get abandoned. Um, France is on its sixth constitution, and a lot of countries don't have constitutions. Canada just got one, you know, about 20 years ago. I think Australia has one now. I don't think 
not sure about New Zealand, but but they um, and in Latin America, you know, practically every regime, you know, writes writes a new constitution. The one in Bolivia, you know, was a very democratic one where they went all over the country. But it's still it's a it's an organic thing, you know. They're they're still uh, still developing, so that. Our Constitution is the only one in the world that's just written in stone, you know, and then you have these, uh, this uh, completely politicized nine people who make decisions about it that are final. And um, it doesn't seem like a democracy in, in almost any terms that you can really stretch. <laughs> your imagination to what democracy is. And I know you've done that. It's just really odd in the first place in that it's exceptional and we're not, we're so unaware of it. You know, we think that um, it's just, uh, just the most uh, wonderful thing. And the people who created it are practically given God status, you know, um, secular God status as, um, even though they were slave owners and Indian killers and, um, you know, that, that they somehow rose above all of that and created this perfect um, document. And that is an evangelical, U.S. evangelical trope. You know, that's also, they're supporting Trump. They say, um, it doesn't matter. You tell them how problematic the founding fathers were. And they say, that doesn't matter. They were vehicles of God, you know, they were vehicles, um, and the, it doesn't matter, it can be all battered up, this vehicle, but they have special powers, you know, it doesn't make them good people, but it doesn't matter, so how do you get around an argument like that, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's logical in its own sense if you accept certain premises, but it is, you know, it is a covenant. I mean, it has um, these, the Cal, that's the Calvinist contribution, is that was what Calvinism was all about. I grew up in, in a Calvinist religion, Southern Baptist, and um, it's a, um, a covenant that then uh, gets translated, and the interlocutor for that uh, transfer to the secular is John Locke, himself a Scotsman and a Calvinist, who created, you know, this idea of the of the social contract, of the contract. So, again, it's a corporate, you know, it's a corporation concept of, of the contract. It, you know, has worked to make the U.S. the, you know, the purest capitalist state. I think the United States was... I said it was born as a corporation. It was born as a capitalist state. And it's eccentric in that way, too, in the, or exceptional, because there were no capitalist states on Earth at the time. Capitalism existed, and it was being practiced. But there were no capitalist states. There were monarchies. All the European colonizers were monarchies uh, until the French became independent and a republic, and they... They certainly didn't have a, um, you know, a covenant idea of their constitution. If we become self-aware, I, I think one of the thing that I things I see um, 
some of my leftist friends and scholars uh, doing is trying to show, I mean, there's book after book, especially in the last 20 or so years, of trying to show that the United States is not exceptional, that it's just like every other country, that it makes mistakes and it you know, is it tries to be dominant, and then there's the whole anarchist wing of of that says all states are the same, you know, and they're all bad. But you know, that really begs the question of why is the United States so uniquely, differently bad? You know, in in terms of, for instance, having eight hundred bases around the world when. The next highest number for any country is five. Yeah, so I don't know. It's um, it's baffling to me sometimes how we normalize the United States as such and normalize the Constitution, but still hold it as uh, you know sacred. So changing it is is practically impossible. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel, by Dominique Edet. In this personal portrait of Edward Said, written by a close friend, Dominique Edet offers a fascinating and fresh presentation of his work, from his earliest writings on Joseph Conrad to his most famous texts, Orientalism and Culture and Imperialism. Adair weaves together accounts of the genesis and content of Said's work, his intellectual development, and her own reflections and personal recollections of their friendship, which began in 1979 and lasted until Said's death in 2003. Throughout, she traces the connection between personal history and theoretical options, illuminating the evolution of Said's thought. Both specialists of Said's work and newcomers will find much to learn in this rich portrait of one of the 20th century's most important intellectuals. Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel, by Dominique Ede, out now from Verso Books. One way that we're very exceptional, and it relates to this, is, and, and it relates to your book Loaded, right, is, is in the extreme rates of gun violence. And so, you know, the Second Amendment is this, you know, constitutional bullet point that allows the gun lobby to sort of wrap themselves up in sanctimony. And as you, you know, point out in both books, but at length and loaded, is that it also obscures the true purpose and historical roots of the Second Amendment, which absolutely relate to indigenous history, right? And this little drive to murder Native people and steal their land. Yeah, and, and for slave patrols. In the late 1600s, when they had ethnically cleansed uh, the area of, well, Virginia, but it had then become, you know, also South Carolina, North Carolina, slave owners from Barbados 
moved up uh, and and founded the colony of South Carolina, and they had developed a uh, slave patrols because their completely repressive system there where they were the minority, you know, white people were the minority and they were constant and successful insurrections, they developed these, these uh, brutal slave patrols and they brought them with them. And that concept, the uh, colonies already had their militias to fight Indians, so they carved out of those Indian militias the uh, slave patrols. These are really uh, can be traced also to the um, uh, modern police forces, uh, you know, how they operate. The language of slave patrols becomes the language of modern policing. And in Loaded, I trace how that happens with the uh, Confederacy uh, where the slave patrols operated, especially in the, in the Cotton Kingdom. They became highly organized and with the use of horse and dogs because there was a constant insurrection in the swamplands of the Mississippi, uh, just uh, swarming insurrections taking place, insurrections of actually marooning in the swamps with the uh, working, you know, enslaved people uh, providing resources to them. And there was just no way they could con control this other than total brutality. And they still had uh, massive, massive insurrections, armed insurrections by slaves. So when um, the Confederacy was uh, defeated, uh, well, the slave patrols kept operating all, you know, as best they could all through the Civil War to try to control uh, the slaves. And when the Civil War ended and slavery was abolished, they were made illegal. Slave patrols were made illegal by the North, you know, in the in the first in the first era of uh, Reconstruction. So within three months of the um, occupation uh, of the North of the Union occupation of the South, the Ku Klux Klan had formed, and these were just the slave patrols that put on hoods, and they were illegal for a few years until the army left, and they took the hoods off, and then they were no longer slave patrols; they were sheriffs and policemen, and um, so there was no Klan. Clan disappeared, but it it didn't disappear. It just you know it just morphed back into legalized legalized um, patrolling. So just the term that's still used, patrolling, you know, it comes from slave patrols, patrollers. So this is you know this is the problem we have, I think, with. Um, the police shootings of young black men and they're running away, shooting them in the back. This is a, it's as if a, the what's built into police training is no longer overtly racist and even black and Chicano and Puerto Rican cops are trained, but they all do it. It's It has to come from the DNA of the, of slave patrolling. That's serious stuff, you know, that the kinds of things that live in the unconscious, that act out, are deadly. But 
Yeah, uh, back to the the guns, the prol proliferation of guns, and the Second Amendment is um, also considered uh, sacred because it's a part of the Constitution. And it is, and it was very intentionally put there for, you know, individual settlers to be able to organize themselves. And the only thing about the well-regulated militia is that that is to distinguish it from highwaymen, you know, bandits. Uh, robbing people. Settler colonialism was all about self-regulation, people organizing themselves because there's no way the U.S. state or the U.S. army could do all that, you know, all that uh, local fighting to take Indian land. It was uh, settlers' wars, and this was, uh, you know, how it, it uh, the whole continent was taken. So, that kind of self-organizing, I think you see it in these um, white nationalist groups forming now, or have never really gone away, but uh, definitely coming out more in the open now, is that they're actually very well organized in that self-organized way. And we all know we're, we're good at that, you know. Uh, U.S. people are good at self-organizing, all kinds of community organizations and everything and there are aspects of that that's very positive but it also you know is it comes from that uh, that's why you have to see that as a context for what the second amendment means in terms of uh, both it looks like a contradiction the right to bear individual right to bear arms and a well-regulated militia you know that to the modern liberal thinker, this is like, um, it, that means it has to be the National Guard, you know. And, well, if it was that, why did they put it that in the Constitution itself? You know, Article 8 is the founding of the National Guard. So you don't need it in, you know, in the Bill of Rights for individuals. So it means what, you know, it it really does mean the individual right to bear arms. So that is a, you know, a constitutional right of people now. And it's not, you know, it, you can't say it's outdated. You say the whole Constitution's outdated, I guess, but it gets interpreted all the time. It's still being acted out. So unless you question the sacredness of the Constitution, you can't, you really have no argument against it. I want to pick up on the theme of democracy that you mentioned, because obviously that's very dear to me after finishing my book. <laughs> yes. um, and it's, you know, it's a thorny question what democracy is. And you mentioned self-organizing and that, as you said, there's positive aspects of that, but it can also have these troubling dimensions. And so I just, I wanted you to sort of reflect on the word democracy, because it's a question that's brilliantly woven into your, your book. And as you point out, the two presidents sort of associated with small d democracy in America, Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, you know, were hostile to indigenous people. I mean, especially Jackson, right? And you write and say, it is not that Jackson had a dark side, as his apologists rationalize, in which all human beings have but rather that Jackson was the dark knight in the formation of the United States as a colonialist imperialist democracy, a dynamic formation that continues to constitute the core of U.S. patriotism, end quote. And you write that, you know, all presidents after him, consciously or not, refer back to him. And, and what you say is they refer back to him on what is acceptable and how to reconcile democracy and genocide and to characterize it as freedom for the people 
I mean, and we definitely see that with Donald Trump, who I'm pretty sure he says that Jackson is his favorite president. Mm-hmm. You know, and given Trump, I was struck also by this section of your book. You write, when Jackson was inaugurated in 1829, he opened the White House to the public, the majority in attendance being humble, poor whites. He was easily elected in 1832, although landless settlers had acquired very little land, and what little they seized on was soon lost to speculators, transformed into ever larger plantations worked by slave labor. You know, and you've thought about this so much. I just want to I want to know your thoughts. You know, yeah, where does this leave the ideal of democracy? What do you make of this of this word, the fact that it's associated with these figures who are, I mean, problematic, it doesn't capture it. Well, you know, I think the way they were, um, of course, you know, Republicans say it's uh, U.S. isn't a democracy. It's a republic. Yes, I hear uh, that all the time. Of, <laughs> they're kind of splitting hairs because, well, you know, the source of it uh, is problematic. Uh, the demos is um, were the, the chosen ones, uh, slaves and women, and uh, it was a, a particular group of people. So it's, it's very sources that are so um, honored were were themselves, you know, a template for a settler democracy. So there is a settler democracy, I think, in the United States. I think it exists. And I know at least one book, and I can't think of the name now, but a fairly recent book, it is a really interesting argument he makes all the same arguments I do. I don't think he's, I doubt he read my book. In fact, I think it was published the same year my book was. But he makes all these arguments very, he says, but there does exist a settler democracy in the United States. But my argument is that what he's not dealing with is white supremacy. And that's not just the United States, you know. That has that has um, its source in Christianity itself. Once, at least once, Islam came about, but Christianity in itself, uh, from the beginning, in the um, you know, in, in the hatred of Jews, uh, Jews as a specific enemy. So Christianity was from its onset exclusive, although proselytizing religion. But then when it became the Holy Roman Empire and they created this, you know, in in Spain was the crucible for this, but not the only place, but it is what established this idea Actually, it was a. It's not just a doctrine. It was a law of the of the cleanliness of blood, of your humanity de- depended on your pure Spanish blood, and um, at the time that wasn't color coded necessarily. Although those Moors uh, were pretty dark, they were North Africans, so, but it wasn't specifically put in you know in color codes. But it's so infiltrated the, even, you know, England, this was like early uh, 1500s that the cleanliness of blood. So the British, when they're colonizing Ireland, they call them apes. You know, they're not human. They're apes. They're a different, so they, you know, they othered in their, um, in their own, you know, uh, democracy, you know, you could say was was developing. They are the people who look just like them. 
So that transfer to then making, well, it would already already had been done, you know, in the middle of the 15th century of identifying Africa as the as the source of a, a permanently dehumanizing status of uh, slavery. So it's that whole history just comes into into the United States, you know, from all these different directions and with a um all the settler democracy was also identified completely on uh, in the Lockean sense of the individual. You know, the individual's productivity, but also the individual's uh, capacity. So it, almost these centuries of, you, of the development of the United States, you've almost, uh, you have these self-organizing things, but it's not really built into it necessarily that there's a sense of a collective. I think there are human aspirations to that that you see in the socialist movements of the early 20th century, that uh, people really seeking uh, a sense of collectivity and anti-capitalist. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, because the socialist ideal, too, is one of solidarity, right? I mean, that's sort of right. what this collectivity you mentioned. And this is, you know, a sort of thread in the book that I found very poignant is, you know, how solidarity is hard to cultivate. And you put this in a really pointed way when you're talking about the Civil War and the regiments of black soldiers who ended up fighting Indians, right? And you write, quote, after the war, many black soldiers, like their poor white counterparts, remained in the army and were assigned to segregated regiments sent west to crush indigenous resistance. The reality strikes many as tragic, as if oppressed former slaves and indigenous peoples being subjected to genocidal warfare should be magically unified against their common enemy, the white man. In fact, this is precisely how colonialism in general and colonial warfare in particular works. And so you talk about they were called right buffalo soldiers, which is a phrase you point out that people might recognize from the Bob Marley song. But it's just this point that solidarity isn't spontaneous. It has to be cultivated. Um, and you give some examples. You mentioned the Green Corn Rebellion of 1917. But, you know, where do you see that solidarity emerging historically? Um, and do you hope for a, a kind of socialism that can address some of these issues? Well, I, I think it really has to be a decision. I'm thinking of, um, you know, I worked in solidarity uh, from the time as a graduate student in the 1960s to the end of apartheid um, and anti-apartheid, I, I met African students at UCLA who were in exile from South Africa, and they were associated with the African National Congress. So we formed an anti-apartheid group there. So I was always in touch with them, and I learned so much uh, from them. I learned, for one thing, about settler colonialism and how it works. They told of, you know, how they could never win guerrilla warfare. They had to win politically. And the main reason was because about 80% of the troops that the South Africans used, the South African apartheid regime, were indigenous Africans, black Africans. And in particular, the um, Bushmen who were trackers like no other people in the world. You know, that whole Southern Africa area, the, they had long been um, 
trackers, hunters. And I said, well, how, you know, I was confused by that when I was young. I said, because they, um, there in London where I spent uh, three months with them, you know, with the ANC International, the, a lot of these were, well, they were mercenaries. Some of them, some of them were mercenaries, but they would um, come to London after they were, so there were all these pubs that were either ANC or they were mercenary pubs. And the ANC had the project of going and changing the minds of these soldiers, you know, that uh, they're fighting on the wrong side. And that kind of humanity just, you know, just really blew me away. And then after their victory, you know, after they took power, instead of punishing the Bushmen, who were, you know, very impoverished people, they certainly were not treated well by the South African apartheid government by any means. They kept taking their land, you know, their hunting grounds. And instead of punishing them, they restored a great deal of their land base, you know, and put investments into their communities and everything. So I don't know how we reach that kind of level of solidarity, you know, but I think it was deeply ingrained in the culture, but also just, you know, the leadership of people like Mandela. But I did see it, that it could be done, you know, that you could turn enemies into friends. And But that's the first I really understood uh, the Indian Wars better, because it always bothered me that, um, you know, the main people that uh, the U.S. Army was using to attack the uh, Lakota, the Sioux, were the, um, were the Crow Indians. At the Battle of Little Bighorn, half of the dead bodies of um, the 7th Cavalry uh, were Crow Indians. And, you know, then historians try to make it as if Crows and and the Lakota were traditional enemies. Well, they weren't, you know, but that's how to create enemies. Colonial forces know that, is that they can create intertribal warfare, and they did that throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, and um, North America. So I think we have to understand that, that it's... Um, that people's minds can change, uh, and that uh, uh, that they everyone is is um, compromised by colonialism. You know, they dispute whether well there were Arab slave traders, there were Jewish slave traders. Well, you know, most of the ones who were on top were, of course, Europeans. Yes, even Rambeau, you know, became a slave trader. So. Even the poets were slave traders, <laughs> so it's and there and there were Africans who were slave traders, you know, um, like Africans. So this this kind of then you know measuring people's struggles by well, why can't they you know why can't they all fight together? You know why did the Vietnamese you know well there's you know there's colonialism then there's class. One difference between the original version of an indigenous people's history and the new edition, an indigenous people's history for young people, is that the last few chapters are different, right? Because you account for the new movements, the the rise of the water protectors. And so we're in this moment right now where right. people are talking about 
the environment and talking about a new deal and a green new deal. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, the Democratic Socialist in Congress, was inspired by going to Standing Rock. And so I guess I want to kind of end here. Your books also talk about the legacy of the original New Deal on indigenous populations. But, you know, as people are taking inspiration from that period and also looking to indigenous communities for a kind of leadership moving forward um, and new ways of other ways of relating to the land, to everything in the uh, non-human world that sustains us. What lessons can we draw on? What thoughts do you want to leave us with? Yeah, it's great that the new, um, the young people's version of the book, they were able to include the um, uh, water protectors and the Standing Rock. You know, Standing Rock was, um, was an absolutely amazing event. And I think it's the first time that so many people were on Indian land, you know, in, in a native community. Standing Rock is a very special place. Standing Rock was, uh, you know, just stands for um, for resistance. This is where Sitting Bull was buried. This is where the Dakota people who fought in Minnesota and uh, the genocide, where they were taken in as refugees. So it's a, it's not, you know, it's it's not a pure place, just a, you know, a pure lineage. It's a it's a site of resistance. And and the most Indian the lands that still belong to native people these are generations of people um, who fought for that land so it's just it really should be called sites of resistance not Indian reservations and so I think these seeds were planted um, like AOC who decided to run for Congress based on on uh, the i think the courage that she uh uh realized she had and so i think it's very hard to measure you know how how this um how this will continue but i know one thing that's come out of it is is an organization that is very important called the red nation the Red Nation is a is a avowedly, I mean, self-defined socialist, Marxist-oriented organization that started in uh, with Navajos and uh, Pueblo and Apache people and uh, a Lakota or two, one being Nick Estes, in Albuquerque, where they. The professor, Jennifer Dinadali, a Navajo professor at University of New Mexico, who was working with the homeless people in Albuquerque, 80% of the homeless in Albuquerque are Native people. And there were a couple of fires, you know, burning up their camps, and then one Navajo uh, homeless person was killed. So she called on, you know, and put the word out and called on students, the students, uh, uh, undergraduates there, and others to um, to organize, and also in Gallup, where it's just you know a constant. It's a homeless, homeless, and and uh, a skid row, you know, of uh, and brutalized Navajos all the time. So they really started with a community as a community organization project so that's their roots and that's how they've 
they've developed. And in the past four years, it's just uh, remarkable. You know, how the other thing is there have been long-time uh, conflicts between Pueblos and Navajos over land, you know, and the Hopi Navajo uh, dispute over land. And it's all really originally Pueblo land, it's true, you know, but uh, colonialism piled people upon people. And so, the, the, you know, they haven't worked to, all that well together in the past. And this has really brought the young people together in ways that are influencing then their whole communities. And so, and then they work very closely with, they're very involved with um, assisting, you know, the refugees at the border, sending uh, people down constantly. They have grown. Um, I think it's just really the most important organizing effort. It's not a, um, there are no officers. They work by consensus. They, they have their, you know, different groups that just, you know, work, they, they just have certain commitments that they, um, they adhere to and, and people can go and, uh, take a look at rednation.org and, uh, and, um, join if they want to. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yeah, a new vision of democracy, right? Yes, that, it's the most democratic organization I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful place to end this. I really want to thank you for taking the time. And I want to just recommend to everyone listening that they check out all of your books. There are many, many books covering so many topics we didn't get to address here. So thank you again, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Thank you, Astra. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is a professor emeritus in ethnic studies at California State University and the author of many books, including An Indigenous People's History of the United States and An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. Her most recent documentary, What is Democracy?, is now streaming And her latest book, Democracy May Not Exist, But Will Miss It When It's Gone, is out now from Metropolitan Books. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population— The beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, with editing this episode from Robert Waldorf. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com and transcripts too. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and please find us wherever it is you get podcasts and subscribe. Wherever that is, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. 
What also does that is you telling friends, family, strangers on the internet about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 